I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. Since I arrived in Manhattan some 40 years ago, I've started almost every day by reading the New York Times, and I suspect I'm not alone in that tradition. Despite its shortcomings, and it has many shortcomings, the New York Times is still the paper of record. With me today is the New York Times national politics and West Coast cultural affairs reporter, Adam Nagurney. He joined the newspaper in 1996, was appointed chief national political correspondent in 2002, and became the Los Angeles bureau chief in 2010. He took a leave of absence in 2018 to write an unauthorized history of the New York Times from the final years of Arthur Sulzberger's reign as publisher to the election of Donald Trump in November 2016. The title of the book is The Times, How the Newspaper of Record Survived Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. It just came out, and it's available now in bookstores. Adam Nagurney, welcome to In These Times. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Delighted to be here. I wanted to uh, talk to you first about the book that you just published about the New York Times. The full title is The Times, How the Newspaper of Record Survived Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. The New York Times is an important paper for us in New York, where we are, and of course for the Jewish community as well. I wanted to press you on all of these elements. What's the scorn that you see and what is the transformation of journalism that you identify? But first and foremost, let me ask you, what prompted you to write the book in the first place? So this is something I've been thinking about doing a long time. As you probably know, Gay Talese wrote a book about the history of the New York Times that ended, I think, in 1968. And that kind of inspired me. I've been thinking about it for a long time. There were logistical issues like, could I still work at the paper and write about it? And then I finally decided about six years ago to do it. And what I wanted to do is figure out a way to tell the inside story of this newspaper that, for better and for worse, has a huge impact on American society and politics. And I just spent the next six years kind of doing that. This is not an authorized uh, book. You said it took you six years to research and write? Almost seven. Was that about what you expected, or did it take more time than you thought? I had, You know, it's funny, Rabbi, that's a great question. I had no idea what to think. I know enough to know that books always take longer than people think they're going to take. I was going to take whatever it took to get the book as good as I could make it. So let me ask you how the New York Times survived scandal, scorn, and the transformation of journalism. What's the scandal that you wanted us to know about? So there are a couple of scandals, um, if I can use that word, that we talk about and tell the story of in the book. One is the coverage leading up to the war in Iraq, which... I think the Times and a lot of people, but certainly the Times got wrong. The other is Jason Blair, the serial fabulous who made stuff up until he was caught and dismissed. And, you know, over the course of this book, two very prominent journalists who were executive editors were dismissed by the publisher. And that's pretty extraordinary. And I write about that as well. And it's part of the overall story of a newspaper that, you know, in some ways is exemplary, in some ways is human, just like all of us, and makes mistakes and screws things up and makes personnel decisions and coverage decisions. And So you're focusing on the primary scandal of the coverage of Iraq? That's one of the examples of the sort of flaws that we talk about. It's sort of the overall sweep of the book, and Iraq is one of them. 
because I think that was a really big deal while we were, you know, over the court. You know, this history begins in 1977 or so and ends in 2016, and that was kind of a big deal. Is there a structural flaw that you think the Times and other journalists and papers were dealing with? Was there something specific about the way the New York Times was structured that created specific, unique flaws for the New York Times? I don't think there was anything specific. I think that a lot of these newspapers have the same issues that they need to deal with. I think the Times, from what I learned in studying the paper over these past 40 years, has a better self-correcting mechanism. For example, on the coverage of Iraq, you'll see eventually, I think the paper kind of got it right. But you know, the sort of flaws that you see in journalism or the dangers, and there's they are as strong today as they were 50 years ago, is that there's always a drive to be first, right? Or to have the most sort of dramatic thing. I think a good newspaper or a good newsroom will try to govern against making the kind of mistakes that come with that kind of exuberance. And I think in general, the paper did. I think when people read the book, they'll see that different executive editors handled that differently. And there was certainly more of a premium on scoops and exclusives in the early 2000s that I think helped contribute to the issue of Judy Miller was a reporter, a very talented reporter, but who also had some very wrong stories. The other example we were talking about, and again, you might remember him, Rabbi, was Jason Blair. He fabricated a whole lot of stories. And, you know, I don't know how you really prepare for that, right? Like I, I spoke to one senior editor at the time who was dealing with the Jason Blair disciplinary stuff, and he dealt with ethical stuff in the paper in general. And he said the whole thing was so surprising to them because he was like, how do you guard against people who just make stuff up, right? Like when you're an editor, certainly back then, or a journalist, you're not thinking that someone's going to invent the story from whole cloth. You might think they're exaggerating, God forbid, but they're not going to invent stories from whole cloth. And that, you know, that's what happened there. I think that event was mostly, I want to say it was sort of individual, I guess, sui generis, but you know, we've seen this happen in other papers and magazines over the years. It's just part of the package. Mm -hmm. And the scorn in the title of the book, uh, uh, is that uh, something specific or is that that's just the general atmosphere uh, of those who disagree with uh, the perspectives of the New York Times, <laughs> that they're constantly heaping scorn on the paper of record? I think it's more the latter. Um, people, I think, love to love the New York Times and love to hate the New York Times. <laughs> and... You know, there's a lot of coverage that's very polarizing over the years, and people are very critical of it. And in some cases, justifiably, in some cases, not. And you see it with politics. You see it with coverage of the 2016 presidential race. People talk about how the paper covers Trump or covered Trumps over the years, and there's a lot of scorn dumped on the paper over it. And I think the paper has to sort of deal with that. And I write at length about that process over these past years. And the transformation of journalism, that seems to me a very big topic. I mean, the, society in general has undergone this most enormous transformation, and I know it affected uh, media outlets. Yeah, it, I mean, it's huge. When I first started talking about this book, when I first started talking to publishers about it, 2016, I did not know how this story would end or if it would end. There were people that would have told you at the time that the New York Times would not even be in existence in six years, or certainly not in the form that it was in terms of the respected news organization. And you know, I could tell, we could all tell that this that the journalism ecosystem was in complete turmoil. People were moving away from print newspapers and you know, younger readers were not reading the kind of print New York Times that used to end up on 
doorsteps or newsstands in New York. And it was just a big change that was going on. And I think what the Times succeeded in doing is figuring out a way to transform the paper into a digital newspaper. And that's in two different ways. The first was figuring out a way to make money, to be profitable from being a digital newspaper. And what they did was they took a gamble and implemented a paywall. They began charging for content. And now you look back on that, it seems like it was the smartest, obvious thing to do in the world, but it wasn't. There was a lot of debate about that. People that were more digitally native did not want to do that. They thought that the information should be free and you shouldn't be charging people access. They saw right away how well it worked. They saw you know, immediately that people were beginning to sign up for subscriptions. And as you know, there's now, I think nine or 10 million people paying to read the Times online. I mean, that's you know crazy, crazy in a good way. <laughs> the other part of that was the paper you know, really learned how to figure out who's reading them and why and target them. And there are things you can do to increase, you know, readership, which means increasing revenue. They have people who are just in the newsroom or in charge of audience development. They just do that all the time. That would have been unthinkable, you know, 20 years ago. Parenthetically, one thing I did on this book is I went through years and years of archives. The New York Times has its own archives. And then a lot of the key people gave me, editors gave me access to their personal papers. So I could see a lot of this that was going on. And you'll find with some of the earlier editors that would seem so obvious now, like, you know, giving copies of the stories in advance or doing it online or doing it to time faxes. And you remember what that was? <laughs> and one editor wrote to the publisher saying, I don't understand this madness. It's going to destroy the whole paper. It's just a, such a change in mindset. Mm. I can tell you firsthand, the amount of uh, subscribers through virtual technology is a huge success. Yeah. Well, you and I might have once considered what a newspaper was 30 years ago. That's I use the phrase here as we're talking. I use the phrase newspaper in the book, but it's much broader than that. It does include podcasts are a big part of it. It's really, it's a sea change. And that's when you ask about what the transformation of journalism is in the subtitle, that's what it is. It's that, yeah. I can tell you it, it transformed uh, the way I read the paper too. I couldn't imagine. I kind of resisted the online subscription for a while, but I, I read the paper every day. I've been reading the paper for uh, 35, 40 years now, every single day since I arrived in New York. Oh, great. And, you know, it took me a while. I wasn't among the first to uh, subscribe electronically. But it's amazing the transformation in me. You know, I'm not that generation that grew up with technology as if it was an extension of their bodies. Right. But nonetheless, you know, within a short time, and certainly by now, I actually can't read a paper paper. Is that right? Yeah, it's really hard for me to, to do it. It's so interesting. Okay. If you look at retrospectively at the unknown back at the time, are we going to set up a paywall or not to make sure that people who read the content have to pay for it, which makes sense, not only on a business level, but just on a moral level, of course. I mean, it's produced, it costs money to produce this content and somebody's got to pay for it. Right, exactly. But do you think this success, and maybe you know, maybe you have data, is this success unique or mostly unique to the New York Times because of its special status in American society and around the world? Or that gamble that the Times took, did it pay off for the other newspapers? What the Times has always argued is that in order for this to work, the Times has to offer 
as much as possible the highest quality journalism, which of course it doesn't always do, but that people need to have something worth paying for. So it, I think it it was easier to do with the Times because of the sort of extensive news gathering operation it had because of its reputation. I, I hate to use the word brand, but because of its brand. And I think it'd be harder for other papers to do. Not impossible. The Wall Street Journal has a paywall. But again, that's a different kind of audience. A lot of their readers are on expense accounts, so they can you know, charge their company for it. You know, I'm not sure we can look at the Washington Post. The Washington Post is a terrific paper, but I'm not sure they've quite done the kind of successful transformation into paid subscribers that the Times did. And I think you make a really good point here, Rabbi. The New York Times had a bit of an advantage in terms of the reputation it had built over the years. The other part of this, which I write about in the book, which I think is really important, is can you make the transformation and still protect what makes the Times the Times? The quality of the report in terms of the integrity of the report. And, you know, I think that question is still being answered. It's not easy. Can I ask you uh, just a couple of broad questions about the New York Times? Yeah. We've had interviewed journalists on our podcast, current, former journalists of the New York Times, people who have written for the New York Times. One of the criticisms that I heard that I thought was really interesting was that back then, journalism was kind of a blue-collar profession. It was a profession that if you didn't necessarily need a college degree, but it was it was kind of a scrappy type of investigative enterprise that drew a certain type of person. And today, in particular in the younger generation, they are attracted to journalism more as an expression and a form of social action. Do you buy that? I want to be careful not to generalize on this. Do I think that there are some people drawn to journalism now more for social action that have less of a fealty to the kind of, you know, quote unquote, objective journalism telling the story that maybe older journalists, such as the one you're talking to here, might have? Yeah, but I just think that's part of it. It's more, the newsroom is larger and more complex than that. When I first entered journalism in New York City, I worked for the Daily News, right? And that was a really blue collar newsroom, right? And we went out and did cop stories and, you know, all kinds of cool stuff. When I moved over to the New York Times, that was a big cultural difference. The New York Times was different because the Times always really was populated very heavily by, you know, Ivy League college and college graduates in general. So it was a much different kind of newsroom. That doesn't mean they looked at the newspaper as a way of advancing social action. I think a lot of journalists look at newspapers as a way of writing injustice or doing good. And that was as true at the Daily News as it was at the New York Times. Now, we can argue, especially now, what that really means. But I think that like, you know, journalists like Jimmy Breslin at the Daily News or Mike McAlary or, you know, later on people at the Times like Clyde Haberman. I mean, they just really went out to I'm going to sound a little bit starry-eyed here, I don't mean to, but uncover injustice and just try to make things right and call out hypocrisy on the part of politicians. That's a little different than what you're seeing now in terms of journalism as social action. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's part of the transformation that we're going through. You know, I would argue probably post, that's a reaction to Trump in no small part. That frames the way they see an issue and and even straight-up reporting as opposed to opinion becomes, in effect, infused with opinion. Do you think there's merit to that criticism? 
I think there's merit to that criticism. Yeah, I mean, I think you need to guard against that, right? And this is something the paper, the Times has been struggling with since Trump to get it right. How far do you go, for example, in saying that the president is telling a lie or calling him a liar? Slightly different thing, right? Um, What's the best way to present it? And there's a lot of argument about that. You'll see, starting in 2016, the paper's starting to use words like lie and liar because Trump kind of forced it. That very much goes against what had been the sort of ethic of journalism in general over the decades. And it's part of this change going on. I don't think it's been resolved yet, frankly. I think it's still, we're all still kind of figuring it out. And, you know, is it enough in this era for the newspaper just to sort of recite the facts with quote unquote objectivity? It probably isn't. If I'm writing a story for the newspaper, I can't just repeat something that Trump says. I don't mean to keep picking on Trump, but so it is. I can't just repeat something that Trump says that we know is not true and not point out it's not true. Sometimes you'll see a phrase in any paper saying, Trump's saying something that's false, but you can't just let it hang out there. And you can't, there's this whole thing, both sides of I don't think in that kind of world you say, well, so-and-so says such, but so-and-so says such, right? Like, there is an objective answer to what's true. And I think you want to try to get to it as much as possible. These are all really difficult issues that I think journalism in general, including the New York Times, is trying to wrestle through. And they're certainly not resolved in my book. They're out there. They're important issues that you're raising. There are a lot of uh, American Jews who really pour scorn on the New York Times in terms of their coverage and their approach to Jewish issues generally, but especially Israel. What's your response to that? I think that Israel is one of those issues that is really polarizing and has always been really polarizing. And if you look over the years, you know, all our bureau chiefs had to deal with this, right? And like, I just think it's one of those things where whatever you write, somebody's going to have a problem with it. And of course, we're going to get stuff wrong sometimes, but often not. When I was in, I think in Los Angeles or New York, I forget once I, I considered putting my hand up to become the next Jerusalem bureau chief to go to Israel for the Times. And I talked to whoever the bureau chief was at the time. And they said it was the hardest job they ever had at the paper. It was just because <laughs> you're always getting beaten up and you can't do anything right. And there's obviously some merit to some of the criticism. It's also a really sensitive issue where people have very, very strong opinions, even before Netanyahu. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing here. And also, without psychoanalyzing the paper, the paper's always, you know, had issue, you know, it always been viewed as kind of like, should it be the Jewish voice in America? I, this is before my time at the paper, so I, you'll see, you won't see anything in the book about this. But obviously, given the fact that the paper was originally owned by Jews and there was a lot of, and it, and it serves a city and has, a, I think, a very highly Jewish readership. So I think there were certain expectations. And I think that's part of what you're seeing people deal with now. Let me uh, go on to politics. Now your role, at least in, through the 2024 elections, is to cover politics for The New York Times, right? Yeah. What do you think of our current political state of affairs? I mean... You know, a couple of things. I used to be the chief political reporter. I left in 2008 after Obama was elected. I remember being in the newsroom the night I wrote the story and being elected and thinking, I'm never going to get to write a story like this again. Go do something else. I don't think politics are as inspiring as they once were. I mean, I used to find for all the flaws of politicians, and there were many, but covering people like Mario Cuomo or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, like, you know, John McCain, 
there's something inspiring about them because they weren't only about ambition. I think they were obviously about ambition, but they were also, they stood for things. And I think politics has become very degraded. And I think it's turned a lot of people off to politics because of that. It made a lot of people cynical about politics and justifiably so. And I think in some ways for a lot of people, the election right now is a slog because you have these two older men who've been around for a long time who don't bring the kind of, you know, inspiration or hope or whatever that, you know, a Bill Clinton might have once brought or even a Ronald Reagan brought back in the 80s. So it's very demoralizing. I feel like I'm lucky to be covering this really important election for this paper, but I can't tell you it's the most ennobling assignment I've ever had. You mentioned uh, the stakes of the election. What, in your view, is at stake? I mean, I think I think it's very clear that former President Trump wants to do things that could fundamentally alter democracy in a lot of ways. He wants to get rid of a lot of government services. He wants to increase the power of the presidency. He's been very open about it. I mean, this, to me, the stakes of what a Trump presidency would be like is very clear. And I think that it's, you know, different than any presidency that I observed or studied. And I think he's very transparent about it. Some people are just going to vote for it, and that's fine. But, you know... Do you think it's an overstatement uh, that's part of the political uh, discourse to say that uh, democracy is at stake and that if uh, Trump is elected, then American democracy will never look the same? As someone who who is given to making overstatements, (laughs) my gut is that that is a little bit overstated, but there's a lot of element of truth to it. And we just don't know. You know, we just don't know. I think it's very dangerous to try to predict what's going to happen. But I think the more that we can illuminate for voters, Americans, what a Trump presidency would look like, based on what Trump has said and what he's done, the more they can make an informed decision and make that sort of decision, that, that sort of ruling themselves. And that's what I think we're trying to do. And at the same time, you know, Brett Stevens had a really interesting column on why Biden has so many difficulties, despite the fact that the economy seems to be doing so well. And I just think that's a really interesting story as well. You know, sort of Biden's weird inability to close the sale with voters. Are you surprised that Trump so much in the lead in the Republican primary election, in particular, given his uh, legal problems? I guess I am surprised. Like, I knew that there was a very, very strong base. He touches a chord with a lot of Americans. I would have thought that the sort of run of indictments would have cut into his support, if not because people don't like the idea of having a president who's been indicted as president. I mean, that seems like a reasonable thing to be concerned about, but also because people would think that he couldn't win. But I think what's going on is people have decided that he can still beat Biden, and he's managed to get people to think that these indictments are just a political action against him, and that he hasn't done anything that other politicians haven't done. And he's just done a really good job of sort of surpassing this. I guess he's helped to some extent by not having the strongest field of Republican candidates to run against. I I should caution here based on my experience, people that you don't expect to sort of surge ahead often do surge ahead as we get closer to Iowa and New Hampshire. So I guess that could happen. But right now, none of them seem to have the slightest idea of how to take on Trump, like not at all. And DeSantis being the obvious best example of that. I'm not going to ask you, you know, for a prediction of who's going to win. But can I ask you what your sense of how do you see the campaign unfolding over the next uh, year and uh, several months? I'm going to assume right now that this is going to be a Biden-Trump race. 
And if that's the case, I think it's going to be a referendum on a few issues. One, Trump, does he have the moral standing to be president? Biden, is he too old to be president? Right? Totally legitimate question. Democrats get upset about that. And third of all, you know, I think you can make a pretty objective case that Biden has been a a very effective president, right? Has not sold himself well, but has been a very effective president. And he's made some big mistakes, Afghanistan being an obvious one. And will he be able to get Americans to sort of agree with that? Those are kind of the three biggest issues to me that that, that the race is going to be played out against. The uh, first case that's going to be heard, that's the Washington case. Mm -hmm. Do you think if, if Trump is convicted, do you think it matters in terms of the electoral politics? Yeah, I do. Not with Republican base voters. But I do think it matters to independent voters. I do think it's a problem. I do think that's why you'll hear a lot of people say that at the end of the day, Biden has the upper hand here. I just don't see how getting convicted of a crime is going to help him with independent voters or people who are inclined not to vote for him anyway. So I don't I don't think it helps him. But if, if he's found not guilty, do you think that'll propel him forward? Would that be a big plus for him? I do. Yeah, because he'll be able to say, hey, look, Biden's government came after me and they failed. It might give people the permission to vote for him where they would not have intended to vote for him before. But keep in mind, there are four cases. So I'm not sure one case alone will do that. The, the thing about this race, it's just such completely uncharted territory, right? Like, we just never had anything like this before. So it's kind of hard to figure out how all this kind of stuff plays. And it's, it's going to be quite an intense time in America. So uh, is there something that you want to uh, advise us or bring to our attention on what we should be specifically looking for in the next year plus during the election campaign? I think we're going through a very difficult period in this country, a very dark period in this country. And I think the next year is going to be really dark. For better or for worse, I tend to be optimistic. I mean, that Sandy Corny, I you know believe in the country, and I believe in people here, and I believe in people aspiring to do the best thing. Now, I realize what we're seeing now might test that, and it might seem a little bit pie in the sky, but that's my feeling. I just think just keep living your life and do what you believe in and, you know, act correctly. I think that will do it. I, for one, am happy that you got the assignment to cover the presidential campaign. And good luck on the book. I'm sure it'll be uh, a very, very popular and important uh, piece. Thank you for coming on in these times. Thank you, Rabbi. Appreciate it. This has been an exciting and enlightening conversation. I love dialoguing with people who are highly intelligent, articulate, and have expertise. They know a lot about their field. It's just a pleasure for me to sit back and enjoy the flow of deep thoughts and eloquent expression from someone who actually knows what he's talking about. A word on the New York Times. As a devoted reader and admirer, Adam mentioned in our discussion that the Times debated whether it should be the Jewish voice in America. So especially to our Jewish listeners, the Times is not the place to gain an understanding of Judaism's central value, nor is it the voice of American Jewry. Part of our problem in American Jewish life is that so many of us consider the New York Times not only the paper of record, but its force is that of the Bible. So as a rabbi, let me be clear. As good as the paper is, it is not Torah, and the journalists and opinion writers of the Times are not Moses. 
Jewish journalists do not even consider themselves Jewish spokespeople. They are media professionals who happen to be Jewish. If you want to learn about Judaism, if you want to understand basic Jewish values, if you want to develop Jewish habits and a Jewish lifestyle, I'm sorry to be the bearer of the disappointing truth, but you need to make your peace with synagogues, rabbis, and teachers. You need to read Jewish books and study Jewish texts, beginning with the real Torah. And speaking of truth, Adam mentioned a critical issue in modern America. Everyone utters some untruth from time to time, and politicians are masters of shading messages. But how do we protect ourselves not from little lies, white lies, self-serving exaggerations, but from blatant falsehoods? Adam mentioned the Jason Blair crisis, a journalist who simply invented stories out of thin air. How does the media protect itself from someone who simply fabricates stories, who pulls them out of whole cloth? All of us are struggling with this now, in media and politics for sure, but also in so many other key institutions of our lives. Modern communications technology has made it so much easier to voice and spread blatant untruths. I do not think it is an exaggeration to say that freedom itself rests on telling the truth. Jews of all people know how public lies, especially by public figures, can destroy public trust. The assault on objective truth in this country is a grave threat. The assumption that there are facts that exist outside of you that you cannot simply make up an alternative reality undergirds all progress in every field of human endeavor, including science, technology, medicine, philosophy, law, politics, and even religion. Liberty cannot withstand a surfeit of public lies. Freedom requires a level of public honesty consistent with our ability to trust each other. Hosea the prophet knew this already 2,700 years ago. There is no honesty, he lamented. False promises and dishonesty are rife. For that, the earth is withered and everything that dwells on it languishes. Everything perishes. My people shall be destroyed. If there is no honesty, if lie follows lie, then, as Hosea warned, sooner or later, freedom itself will collapse. Wave after wave of dishonesty will crash upon the protecting walls of democracy, eventually wearing them down. In the final analysis, trust is what protects civic morals, democratic values, and the rule of law. Destroy these, and you destroy democracy's ability to protect itself from itself. As usual, George Orwell put it best. He wrote, organized lying is integral to totalitarianism. Totalitarianism demands a disbelief in the very existence of objective truth. Friends of totalitarianism argue that since absolute truth is not attainable, a big lie is no worse than a little lie. But organized lying weakens the desire for liberty. Any attack on the concept of objective truth threatens in the long run every department of thought. Objective truth is so fundamental to Judaism that Talmudic rabbis described truth as God's seal. The world stands on three pillars, on justice, on truth, and on peace, said Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel. Remove the pillar of truth and the world cannot stand. Justice and peace depend on truth. Execute the judgment of truth and peace will be in your gates, proclaimed the prophet Zechariah. Do not execute the judgment of truth and there will be no peace because there will be no public trust. 
In our secular society, truth is as sacred a concept as it gets. How many have laid down their lives on its altar? It's not only a question of protecting my right to say whatever I want to say. It is also that truth itself is a glorious thing. Think of all those spirited souls whose devotion to facts, to objective truth, no matter where it led them, revolutionized our world. Moses, Socrates, Galileo, Spinoza, Leonardo, Einstein. Think of all the medical and scientific breakthroughs that defied conventional thought. Think of history's freedom fighters who challenged, then accepted social truths. Frederick Douglass, Mandela, Martin Luther King. I am wholly aware of the flaws and imperfections of the media. Often, not only do I disagree with the way the New York Times covers a story or its op-eds, from time to time these pieces are truly insulting, biased, simplistic, and unserious. But it is one thing to point out the mistakes, distortions, or prejudices of members of the media. To his credit, Adam Nagurney wrote an entire book. He devoted over six years of his life to the task of uncovering and presenting to the world the scandals and scorn of his own newspaper, his employers. But those who purposely undermine truth, who subscribe to a political theory of alternative facts, corrode civic discourse and public trust, the cement of democratic institutions. Once organized lying is normalized, social solidarity erodes. The great American playwright Arthur Miller wrote a play, The Crucible, about the Salem witch hunts. It was a parable on the Joe McCarthy era that ensnared Miller himself. He reminisced about his weeks-long research in the libraries of Salem. He wrote, To lose oneself day after day in that record of human delusion was to know a fear of the spectacle of perfectly intelligent people giving themselves over to a rapture of such murderous credulity. It was as though the absence of real evidence was itself a release from the burdens of this world. Evidence is effort. Leaping to conclusions is a wonderful pleasure. There are no passions quite as hot and pleasurable as those of the deluded. Compared with the bliss of delusion, the dull search for evidence is a deadly bore. As we move ever closer to the elections of 2024, and as the rhetoric and passions ramp up in America, remember, don't just swallow hook, line, and sinker whatever is written on a piece of paper or a screen. Think for yourself. Look for the evidence. Evidence is effort, but it is far better than the bliss of delusion. Until next time, this is In These Times. Thank you.